life wishes. So many patients find themselves in the hospital at their death versus at their home. And this perverted relationship with dying and death has been made worse by medical advancements. We're dying young with less frequency. So death has become more tragic and dramatic. And medical advancements have meant that we can delay death, but typically only in a hospital setting or with aggressive medical care. Think about our American attitude towards disease like cancer. We fight the battle and then we succumb to the disease or lose our battle. It's as if the public fails to recognize what every person with cancer or any other disease is doing on a day-to-day basis, which is simply trying to live each day as normally as possible. It's sometimes difficult to see it until you've been somewhere else. In other countries, the cultural behavior towards death is different, often because the attitude is that illness and dying are human conditions and ones that are inescapable for everyone. I read an article recently that said that Karen Wilson, the woman who reportedly opened the nation's first assisted living facility, was once quoted as saying, we want autonomy for ourselves and safety for our loved ones. Think about that for a moment. How many times as a physician have I supported a family's decision for their loved one because it was safest, not because it's what the patient wanted? But what do Americans want at end of life other than for it not to be their end of life? We don't always know because our fear of death prevents us from having those difficult conversations with family regarding end of life wishes. I leave you with this thought. I rarely meet people over 85 who are unwilling to talk about their death. I think they think about it often. I would even go so far as to say that they want to talk about it. What a gift we would give them if we let them, if we took away that uncomfortable stigma and family circled round to hear what was important. These people here today are my people. At the end of my residency, family medicine residency, I accepted a position to do a hospice and palliative medicine fellowship. The stars did not align for me because of a twin pregnancy and a desperate need to be near my parents. But never have I felt more aligned with kindred spirits than I did at the medical conferences I attended on this subject with these people. Because end of life is sacred and the opportunity to give people dignity in their journey is powerful. Americans' attitude towards death is dysfunctional but hospice care is working hard to change that. It's hard to meet a person who has not felt changed in a positive way by the experience they've had with a hospice, and that should tell us how desperately we need to rethink this whole thing. And with that, let me welcome our esteemed guests. You, you know, that was a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous rant. I have five comments. Well, can we welcome our guests first? Yeah, I do, and, and then we're going to have them <laughs> welcome the comments too. Uh, our guests are from Treasure Coast Hospice. You know, Treasure Coast Hospice is a nonprofit community organization of skilled professionals and dedicated volunteers whose mission, Leanne, is to provide access to compassionate, keywords here, compassionate, caring, expert, and professional hospice and grief support services to patients and to patients' families at the end of life. Treasure Coast Hospice was founded in 1982 and has grown to serve 3,000 patients annually in both Martin and St. Lucie counties, i.e. the Treasure Coast. Thanks to the generous support of our community, the Treasure Coast Hospice Foundation is able to fund indigent hospice care, a pediatric hospice program, music therapy, and comprehensive grief support programs, including individual and group bereavement services, and this isn't a Charlie Brown thing. Camp Good Grief, 
<laughs> for children who have experienced the loss of a loved one. And with that, I'm going to welcome our first guest. Our first guest, and this this was a coup for me. You owe me a big one for this. I got the CEO down here. Oh, okay? man. CEO, busy day, full of traffic. CEO drove two counties to come to the station. And if she didn't, our audience doesn't know that. But Jackie Kendrick <laughs> is the CEO of Treasure Coast Hospice. And she joined that or this organization this past July. And she brings with her an extensive background in hospice care. See, Jackie most recently was the executive director for HPH Hospice in Pasco County. I would imagine that's in Texas. Correct, Jackie? No, that's on the Gulf Coast of oh, Florida. Oh, Gulf Yeah, wrong again. <laughs> okay, thank you. And prior to that, served as executive director at Heart to Heart Hospice in Lufkin, Texas. So you can see why I thought that, you know, because there's a Pasco, Texas. She is certified as a hospice and palliative care administrator and uses her passion and vision for compassionate end-of-life care to guide and lead her in her current role at Treasure Coast Hospice. Who's our next guest, Leanne? Well, first, let me just say welcome. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to introduce Rachel Evans, who's the VP of Clinical Operations. In her role, Rachel leads the clinical team of more than 150 to ensure quality end-of-life care is delivered to more than the 3,000 patients and families annually in Martin St. Lucie counties. She's responsible for providing executive clinical oversight for the organization's clinical teams, admissions department, call center, inpatient units, crisis care program, grief support, and pediatric service. Prior to joining Treasure Coast Hospice, Rachel served as director of nursing at Brookdale Hospice in Kansas City, Missouri, and regional director of clinical operations at Insign Service in Overland Park, Kansas. She's held several management and nursing positions throughout her 20-year nursing career. Welcome. Thank and, you. And might I say go Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And just so we can make it five degrees below zero, I'm going to introduce Dr. Rose Gilby, who joined Treasure Coast Hospice in 2018 and assumed the role of medical director in June of this past year. She's board certified in hospice and palliative medicine. Dr. Gilby brings more than 38 years of experience in family medicine and hospice and palliative care to her position. In her role, Dr. Gilby oversees all patient care programs, and that's a lot of programs, and provides clinical strategic direction, educational supervision of a multidisciplinary team of hospice professionals. And prior to joining that, she has done a lot of other stuff. She's been up in New York. She was head of palliative care at Pocono Medical Center in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. She earned her medical degree from Robert Wood Johnson School of Medicine at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and completed her residency at the Universidad Central del Caribe U.S. School of Medicine. And that's, no, that's not you. Some corrections. Oh, some corrections? Definitely with the oh, pronunciation. Okay. Well, go ahead. Correct me. Well, I um, graduated from a U.S. medical school in Puerto Rico. Okay. And um, graduated a family medicine residency at the Mont um, residency program in family and social medicine at Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Welcome well, to our show. Welcome to our show. So I have a question. What do you think about my rant? Absolutely. Really. Um, Brilliant. 
yes, brilliant. And um, you you need to come in and spend some time with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, you would say then at all of you, because if there's one thing we learned about your bios, it's that you've all been doing this a very long time and have devoted a large chunk of your life to the practice of hospice medicine. So you would definitely agree then that this dysfunctional American attitude towards death is part of what makes this whole thing so absolutely necessary for families? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot to end-of-life care. Uh, it's multifactorial. We really have to bring uh, a lot of culture into it as well. Um, there's many different ways in which patients want to spend their last bit of time with us on earth. Um, and, and they do want to primarily die at home for the most part, and they're not. And that's because we're not allowing them to. You know, there are a few things that bother me every day that I go to work about dying patients. Number one, and I've said this on multiple shows, and I said it on our religion and medicine show when I was on the priest and a rabbi on that show, that our technology sometimes outweighs our morality. That's the first comment. We can, we used to have a thing in our residency program, and I, I, I did my residency program a long time ago, and you know that. I was barely born then. I don't think you were. <laughs> okay. I don't, I, I don't think you were born then. Yes, I was, like one year born. Yeah, you were like one <laughs> okay. year old. Okay, so anyway. Way back then, what did they do? We used to have the residents, we would say, we can keep anybody alive at least overnight until morning. But how fair is that? How fair is it to take a 90-plus-year-old or even a 40-year-old who has end-stage terminal disease and put them on a ventilator in an ICU rather than let him die in the comfort of his home, surrounded by family, friends, and his favorite music, his or her favorite music. That was the first thing that, and that bothers me still. And part of it is us. It's our fault, Leanne, because- It's absolutely our fault. In fact, just today, right? So we wrote this show. We were getting ready for today. We've got another show next week that kind of echoes the same type of concept. We're going to talk about religion and medicine next week, but- you know, I was thinking, I was reflecting a lot on the reading that I had done in preparation for the show. And I had a lady in the hospital just today, so overnight last night. And I, I spoke to her this morning. She said, I want to go home. And so I talked to the doctor taking care of her. And I said, she needs to go home today. And he said, well, I don't know if she's safe to go home. And that those words that I had just read to you that our concern over the loved one's safety outweighs our own, you know, drive for autonomy, I said, well, do you think you're safe to go? And she said, well, didn't I tell you that I needed to be here? And I said, you're going home. You're going home because, you know, it's true that there is a fine line between protecting people and keeping them safe, but also not just making sure we're doing it to uh, make ourselves comfortable and avoid uh, lawsuits. <laughs> but we have an incredible fear of failure as doctors and doctors look at death not as part of the circle of life. We all need to go out and watch The Lion King, okay? Here's the thing. We look at death as a failure for us. We forget that people who are dying need to die. 
And we need to let that happen. Just like birth is a natural process, so is death. And that's where hospice comes on, comes in. So what is the origin of the hospice organization and how long have hospices been around? Well, Cicely Saunders actually started in the 70s in England, and the first hospice in the U.S. was in Connecticut. Um, Treasure Coast Hospice started in 1982. Medicare started funding hospice in the 80s. So it's been around a while. Um, I think the, the, the main thing that we want to do is when we have a patient and a family is we have goals of care conversations. What are their goals? What do they want? And so what you're saying is brilliant. So, you know, a lot of times when I have a discussion with families about I don't, I don't even want to say transitioning to hospice care, but maybe layering the support by involving hospice care. I mean, one of their questions is, well, how is that different than what we're doing now? And so one of the things that I make sure they understand is that hospice is a place, but it's also a team of caregivers and it's also a financial designation. So can you explain that a little bit? What happens from an insurance standpoint when patients are accepted into hospice? Well, hospice is funded by Medicare, Medicaid, just about every private insurance. But as a not-for-profit, we take everybody, whether they have a payer source or not. And we're able to do that by the support of our community. So in other words, people have insurance or don't have insurance. If they meet, quote, hospice criteria Mm -hmm. to be accepted into the program, it's a transition of benefits over to their hospice benefit. And that's why sometimes, you know, there's a reallocation of medications and things like that, because we're transitioning from one, not payer source to another, but a little bit. It's actually um, covered by Medicare Part A. Um, And so now uh, the Centers for Medicare are placing more stringent requirements that hospice cover all medications for patients that are at end of life, not only the comfort medications that come in the treatment of their pain and their other symptoms such as shortness of breath, et cetera, but that we also cover for their diabetic medications, their hypertensive medications, et cetera. So um, it's, it's a sort of a primary care to end-of-life care. Now, Dr. Gilby, can that go back and forth? In other words, you know, we all think hospice cancer, but there are a lot of other types of illnesses where patients need hospice. And so let's, let me give you an example. If I had a patient in hospice with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and now that patient's at home and develops an acute abdomen and needs to go into the hospital for another problem, is that still under hospice care or does that patient go back on Medicare Part A for that and then back to hospice care when they get out of the hospital? How does that work? Well, it really truly depends on the patient's goals of care. What is the patient thinking, wanting, what are their preferences for the treatment of what they're coming on to hospice initially for, which is their chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in this case. However, if they develop something acute on top of the COPD, it is their choice. It is their choice. And with hospice, they can still go to the hospital to address those needs or choose to stay at home and not 
deal with the not be treated for the specific second um, medical problem. But if they, they did have. go back in, who would pay for that? We would. Hospice we, would. Yes, we would. Especially if it is related to their primary hospice diagnosis. So I think another thing that, you know, I try to explain to patients when I'm saying that we need to call hospice and ask them if they can be of help in a situation is that, you know, Ira and I have a job as direct primary care physicians because this country has a crisis of not enough people to help and not enough time with their physician. And so, you know, maybe our patients feel it less. They feel like there's more helpers, there's more listening ears, but the average patient is getting six minutes with their primary care doctor once or twice a year. So what I try to tell people is that all of that changes when hospice is involved because the initial evaluation makes a determination that they're eligible to be admitted to the program. But then they also get evaluated for all their needs, which may not just, are often not just medical. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to take a break in a minute. Um, do we have enough time to talk about all the we, we do have enough time. Okay. Let's so tell us who are the other people that are involved in a patient's care? A physician like Dr. Gilby and... Um, we have a lot of different people involved in their care. We have social services, social workers. Uh, we have chaplains. Um, we have nurses. Um, we have um, advanced registered nurse practitioners. Um, we have a, a team doctor who is uh, focusing on their care, as well as um, we have grief support. Um, we have CNAs that are caring for our patients as well. Um, we provide music therapy. Uh, we provide aromatherapy. We provide massage therapy. And you may also provide volunteer services for other, you know, ne extra needed yes. hours of one-on-one -on -one attention. We have over 350 we have over 350 volunteers. Um, we have our IPUs. Um, and um, so we have a lot of different uh, services that we provide. Yeah, go ahead. I also wanted to say that it's a very important piece of this core medical hospice team to include the patient's primary care provider. So I, as a hospice attending, make every effort to contact the 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 provider that has been following this patient for probably many years and, you know, most of that patient's life to include them in the plan of care for our dying patients. So just for everyone listening who may not have been involved with a patient under the care of hospice, I want you to imagine that all of those pieces, all of those people, the social workers, the nurses, the managers, the team doctors, the therapists, imagine that all of these people are meeting every week, sitting in a room, a private room, talking about each patient individually, not just their medical condition, but what their goals are, what their spiritual beliefs are, what their family dynamic is, what their home environment is, what all of the things that make us people are. And each one of these people is intimately concerned about meeting all of their needs. That is everyone's dream of medical care in America. And these guys can do it. And when I we come back from the break, I want to talk about why it's wrong to do the 11th hour hospice admission and why hospice needs to be contacted earlier in the end of life cycle. But if you just joined us, we're listening to our hospice show, The Comfort Zone, with our special guest, Jackie Kendrick, the CEO, 
Rachel Evans, Vice President of Clinical Operations, and Dr. Rose Gilby, Medical Director. You're listening to WSTU 1450. We'll be back right after this short commercial break. And we're back here at WSTU on our hospice show, The Comfort Zone, a discussion with Treasure Coast Hospice. Our special guests, Jackie Kendrick, CEO, Rachel Evans, Vice President of Clinical Operations, and Dr. Rose Gilby, Medical Director. You know, and I'm going to address this to Dr. Gilby and to Dr. Talton, uh, the other two practicing physicians at the table. One of my biggest concerns is that doctors and often families hold out that last glimmer of hope. It's like, oh, please don't consult hospice yet. There's going to be a miraculous recovery. And sometimes there is. But we as physicians who have been trained to deal with birth and life and death-related issues realize that Often families and doctors wait until that 11th hour when the patient is taking their last breath and then they consult hospice. Can you speak a little bit on how earlier referral to 
hospice takes away a lot of family stress and alleviates patients' fears, anxiety, and pain, and can often extend their lives. The gift of hospice to our patients is that we do it as a team. And so it's not only addressing the clinical symptomatology, that pain or that suffering, that physical suffering of the patient, but we have a social worker, we have a chaplain, we have nurses that visit our patients on a daily basis, and each one of them brings their level of expertise to that patient to be able to listen to the psychosocial aspects of their, their feelings about their death or their dying process. So that's the beauty of hospice, that really it takes a team to manage our patients and communicating amongst ourselves in addressing these patient issues is of utmost important. And that's what we do best. So I think that the reluctance for families and, you know, by proxy physicians to refer early to hospice care is that it's, it's like one of the concerns is, well, what are they going to do differently? Right. Because maybe I've accepted my end of life condition, maybe not, but how is that any different from seeing you, the physician that I know and love? So I, I first of all explain that I'm not going anywhere, right? Because as you said, the primary care doctor is still very much involved, probably as, as involved as they want to be in the care of a hospice patient. But I say the response to your crisis is going to change dramatically. So maybe not now that I'm on call 24 hours a day and everybody has my cell phone and address. But in the olden days... I noticed how you rushed that sentence. <laughs> Forget... Forget my number. No, they, <laughs> I love them. I love them. I never want them to stop calling me. Um, but in the olden days, you know, I was on call sometimes. So people in crises would call and get one of my partners and, um, and, and write. And so this person that doesn't know you is going to answer the phone. And a crisis typically doesn't involve the involve a medication that you already have, right? So you need something, you need somebody to look at your loved one or you in crisis and you're going to be told to go to the emergency room because that's what we do when we can't see you, when we can't touch you, when we can't manage your pain or your problem at home is we tell you to go to the ER and that is exactly where you don't want to be once you've decided that we're going to cope with this end of life condition. So can you tell our listeners what does it, what does a day in the life of a hospice patient look like? And I don't know if you, if you want to start from this crisis patient who, the COPD who calls with acute shortness of breath, gasping for air, eyes bulging out, family looking at the loved one, and it's eight o'clock at night. And what happens next? We hear a lot of these cases. Um, this patient, the beauty of this is that we know this patient, his or her hospice team already knows this patient. We know the medications that they're on. We know his or her level of anxiety. We know what her O2 saturations are doing. Um, and we also, the social worker as well as the chaplain, know what is the patient's fears, um, the patient's, um, what the anxiety is due to, so that the patient at eight o'clock at night, when they start 
they're starting to get acutely short of breath. Um, and they call our 24 hour call center. They speak to a, a nurse that's on call who tries to find out the cause of the acute shortness of breath and, um, tries to either speak to the patient or the patient's family member who's there anxiously, probably just as anxious as the patient is, who's uh, with air hunger, et cetera. And so we try to find out what the cause of the symptomatology. Um, if we feel uh, that the patient requires a little bit more anti-anxiety medication or an opioid for acute shortness of breath, they have a comfort pack that is at home and they already have instructions on how to use this comfort pack. And one of the things that impresses me both about your comfort packs and about your pharmacy, because hospice has an in-house pharmacy and they can take medications that are normally on stock shelves and do amazing things with these medications. I'll give you an example. Take the patient with COPD. They, you and I, Leanne, might give them morphine, but a hospice doctor might give them nebulized morphine because nebulized mm -hmm. morphine will actually relieve their shortness of breath and allow them to have more quality time. So tell us a little bit about the types of meds that you use that we as general physicians don't use every day in the community and how that's a mainstay of what you do, but we would feel uncomfortable with that. I have expertise in uh, pain management um, and in symptom management. I use morphine a lot. Uh, for acute shortness of breath. It actually has a direct effect on the skeletal smooth muscle of the upper airways. I use hydromorphone, which is another strong opioid, which is five times more potent than morphine, also for acute shortness of breath and pain. And um, there are anxiolytics, such as Ativan, that's part of the comfort kit. And the good thing about these medications that are in the comfort kit is that we spend time when we admit this patient to teach the family members, the important family members, how to, how to give this to their loved ones. You know, what is the starting dose that you're going to give your loved one? They know this. Um, the patients know it and their family members know the medications. And just to remind people that, you know, oftentimes someone at the end of life has just been through that you know, quote unquote, battle with their disease, where they've already, they've already encountered all of the egregious problems with the American medical system. They are already used to calling their doctor's office and getting the answering service because someone's at lunch, calling the nurse line and having to leave a message. That is what is normal for them prior to this hospice admission. But now all of a sudden, when there's a problem and they call and not just you answer the phone, but you know who they are when you answer the phone and you're talking about what's in their home that they've already become familiar with. It is simply a marvelous relief for these people that have families that have truly been beaten up. Well, the families are relieved. They, they just have this overwhelming sense of relief that there's someone there that can orchestrate this and make it all work. And 
they don't want to see their loved ones die, but they just want to see them comfortable. And so, and so once we uh, instruct the family members to uh, dispense the medication to their loved one, um, we always follow up with a, um, uh, another phone call subsequent to the treatment so that um, we can actually um, monitor the progress of the patient. If um, these medications usually take about, if it's a sub-Q, it takes about 15 minutes to a half an hour to take effect. If it's an oral medication, it'll take about an hour to take effect. And so once an hour passes by, we will have the family member call us or we will call them and follow up with um, the progress of, of what medication has been dispensed. And if there has not been any improvement, we will um, have a nurse go out there that same night uh, to assess the patient's need for whatever it is uh, that is in the goals of care that the patients and families have already um, established. And, you know, I think that what people feel when, you know, hospice workers of any kind come into the home is this, you know, we as, as, patients and family are in crisis mode and you are not. And that is such a relief to see someone come in calm with an air about them that they have seen this before and they are not scared. And no matter what is going on in your house, I am prepared to help. And so nowhere is that really more palpable is in your hospice houses. So you have several facilities across the Treasure Coast. Can you tell us about your facilities where they are? Um, We have uh, three hospice houses, um, one in St. Lucie County um, on Dunn Road, and there are 16 beds there. And then we have two houses in Martin County, um, and there are eight beds each um, in those houses. They um, do an amazing uh, job taking care of our patients. Um, We um, send our patients there for respite care. Um, meaning that they, the family and caregivers need a break and we need to put the patient somewhere where they're safe and well cared for. Yes. Okay. Um, and those, um, are five day respites so they can come into our hospice houses for five days. Um, and that is for caregiver burnout. Um, um, or if a caregiver is in the, goes to the hospital or if they just are really exhausted and they need a break. Um, we also, uh, do a, a level of care called GIP, general inpatient for patients who are struggling with symptoms that we need to manage. Um, and then we also do, there are times where we'll do routine level of care for our patients who we have either a discharge uh, that we're working on or a placement, or we need to provide education, or um, we, you know, we need to do some more education for, for them. Um, there are social workers um, that are there uh, seven days a week. Uh, we have a chaplain who is there, um, and there are chaplains available seven days a week. Um, and then we have um, our nurses um, and uh, our physicians and our, our nurse practitioners are there as well. So they get the same um, multidisciplinary care um, that you that one of our home patients would, would have. Now, so you've got 16 and 32 beds in, on the Treasure Coast for inpatient hospice. But I know that some of the hospitals also have 
dedicated hospice beds. How does that work? So if a patient is in the hospital and they've entered into the hospice program and they're not expected to die imminently, but the family, let's say they're burned out, can they stay in the hospital in a hospice bed and then be transferred to one of the houses? Explain that. Absolutely. So um, we see that a lot with people that can't be transferred from the hospital. We'll go ahead and admit them there and they will be on hospice services. Um, if they stabilize, then we move them to our inpatient unit. Um, we utilize that across all of the hospitals on the Treasure Coast. And, you know, and so so if you've been to a hospice house, you walk in, it's like a library. It's like really quiet. But, you know, you can imagine the chaos of the hospital, the sounds, the noises, the beeping, the alarms, the loud talking, the people walking by, all of those sounds go away. And so in other words, it's it's almost like you have put yourself in the position of people that are under stress and tried to remove all of the uncomfortableness of illness so that instead of being burdened with the disease. Instead, we're talking about the people and who they are and what their needs are. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> These are houses of comfort is how I call them. They are hospice houses with continuity of care from nurses that have been doing this for a while, are there, want to do it. And they, uh, the continuity of care from hospice attendings that have also, the ones that the physicians that we have there now have been doing it for quite some time. And, you know, last time I visited one of my patients who was inpatient at a hospice uh, house in the, in Stewart, um, it was, it was beautiful, this beautiful moment, you know, of course we're, we're there, we're loving her, we're talking to her. She, she is sleeping, you know, we, we assume that she can hear us though, because we've been told that by you. And when the nurse comes in to assess her, she is talking to her. She is telling her that she's safe. She's telling her that she is loved. She's cleaning her mouth with such care, telling her not to be afraid. I mean, these are the things that we learn in school and then somehow the system beats it out of us. You have brought it back in all of your caregivers. You have brought back that sense of purpose and dignity and they restore it to patients and families. How do you get your word out? How do we help you, other than doing shows like this, get the word out that you offer a service that is unbelievable and is unparalleled anywhere else, and you have to be very unique, all of you, to do this on a day-to-day -day basis and battle what you're up against with society saying, we, we just want to keep people going longer and longer and longer, and death is a bad thing, but death is inevitable. And how do we make that change? Tough question. It's, it's you know, somewhat rhetorical. <laughs> well, I think it. we really work to help people not always think hospice and death together, because it's, it's not about death. It's about quality of life. And you have this entire team of people that are there just to make every hour and every day the best hour and day it can be. And so we go out and we educate as much as possible. We talk to community groups. We talk to healthcare professionals. Anybody that will listen, we will talk to. And I think that your biggest um, supporters are obviously the families that 
remain, the families that are living with it and the families that remain after their loved one has passed. So what are your services that support those people? We have a huge grief support um, center. Um, it does individual grief support, um, groups grief support. It does grief support for the entire community if there's a tragedy in the school. Um, we're there for the community. We do over 6,000 grief um, support sessions a year. And that not just for hospice patients, but for everybody. And so we're there for them. We're there for them as long as they need us. Um, a lot of our volunteers are actually family members that had patients on service. So they continue to stay in our family. And do you think they help remove that stigma, that death stigma, once they've you know been through it and they see what it really looks like? The thing we hear most, because um, we do a survey after every um, patient passes, the thing that we hear most on that survey is we wish we had known sooner. We wish we'd had hospice sooner. Um, we love everything about the service. Mm-hmm. Do you have open houses in the community uh, where where visitors can come by and n- not tour the patient rooms, of course, but uh, actually go in and see what a hospice house is like to kind of alleviate that fear that hospice is that unknown and to make it more known to the community? Is that something you do? Um, absolutely. And anybody can request a tour of our um, buildings, of our hospice houses. Um, we do do that. We're actually remodeling right now here in Stewart, and we will be doing an open house after the remodel is finished. So are these grief services free? Absolutely. They are completely covered by donations from our community. And so what other services do donations from the community cover? Because, you know, we understand that this is partially covered, you know, the service is covered by Medicare dollars, but also you rely on the community and you raise a lot of money. You have donation centers, you have thrift stores. Why are you raising money? What does that money go to? Well, it goes to unfunded care. There's a lot of people that don't have Medicare. They don't have Medicaid. They don't have insurance. It goes to our pediatrics program, Little Treasures, and it goes to our grief support um, counseling. We also have a treasured pets program that goes in and takes care of people's pets and helps find placement for them. If the family can't take the pet after they die, they take them to the vet, they walk them, they water them, whatever we can do to make their lives better. So after someone passes, I would assume that, uh, you know, you just told us that a lot of the volunteer support comes from family members of the of the loved one, but a lot of the financial support as well, I'm assuming, because they're so impressed and they want to support this for other families in the future. Absolutely. So if our listeners today wanted to make a donation to Treasure Coast Hospice, how would they go about doing that? Who do they call? Um, they could call either one of our offices um, or they could go online to treasurehealth.org. Okay. Thank you. And how would somebody uh, inquire about becoming a volunteer for your organization? And what are the opportunities? We have so many opportunities. <laughs> um, we have patient care. We have our treasured pets. We have administrative. Um, so respite. And all they have to do is, again, go on our website at treasurehealth.org or call our office. So there's ways for people potentially to be intimately involved in the care of families and, uh, you know, the dying. There's ways for people to be less intimately involved by just supporting hospice and the mission. Exactly. We even have a division of veteran volunteers who do our veterans pinnings. We do about 325 veteran pinnings a year. 
So I can't help but notice that all of you have brought a, a, a lot of experience, but you're all fairly new to our Treasure Coast Hospice, and we're so grateful to have you. What are your goals to start off with this new organization? How do you hope to um, continue good work and maybe bring something new to the plate? They're fighting over who's going to answer this. They they all want to speak. (laughs) Well, I actually came down here to retire, but... Uh Uh-oh. We've heard that before. (laughs) Yeah, I just just couldn't. Um, I'd like to make sure that... um, as a family physician in my prior life, uh, to make sure that community is really um, involved with our organization, um, involving our religious leaders. I, I used to give talks in the Society of Teachers of Family Medicine, where I used to bring a rabbi, a priest, a pastor all together. I mean, it's it's really very important to really meet the patient at their needs. We are here to service um, their dying process and um, whatever their um, whatever makes them happy is what keeps me going. So, so your goal is to try to make sure that this community is plugged into your organization. Absolutely, has to be community oriented. Okay, and Jackie. Well, with Treasure Coast Hospice, it's been here for 38 years, and my goal is to be a part of such an amazing organization. Um, It's a blessing every day, and I know that I get way more back than I can possibly put in. Um, So just to be a part of that is, is my goal. Well, she's the last one. <laughs> Rachel? Um, I just want to say that it's um, it's been a blessing to be here. I want to carry on Treasure Coast Hospice's legacy um, and continue to support the community in any way that we can. Um, they support us in such grand ways. And so I just want to continue to make us the best hospice in the Treasure Coast. You guys are absolutely incredible. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show. And bringing to our listeners uh, the information that there is someone out there that can help a patient and a patient's family in their most crucial times of need. And you guys do that. I mean, there's a special place for all of you, I'm sure. And with no pun intended, the end is near? No. <laughs> I, yeah, the end is near. My first one of the season, folks. But I think we're out of time. Oh. Uh, no, we ha- I think we have time for one more question. Boy, that's right. That's going to be a tough question, isn't it? Um, where, do you see, where do you see hospice going five, ten years from now with the changes in the healthcare system? Uh, and is there any talk of defunding hospice like other larger programs have been defunded. How's that an ending question? There are a lot of new funding programs coming from Medicare. Um, I think, but instead of defunding hospice, they're actually embracing hospice Yay! um, because they have seen that we know how to manage resources well and take care of patients and have great outcomes. That's, that's encouraging. It is. 
And, you know, the other thing that I kind of talked about in my rant was making sure that before we even get to the point of talking about end of life care, that people are able to express their wishes in an advanced directive. Do you have resources on your website for how someone could start writing their own advanced directive? Absolutely. And there was actually a study that just came out that said that people had a longer life if they uh, did their advanced directives. So this is a living will for everyone listening. I think you all use five wishes, which is my yeah, favorite Yeah, the five one. wishes is great. It addresses everything. And now we really are. We're out of time. Thank you so much. Thank I really you. appreciate you all. Thank you. <laughs>